Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of a rock retrospective. My name is Talon Williams. I am Chip Hazard. And I'm Roger Sierra. And today, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to be discussing true new metal pioneers, a band that is definitely thought of as one of, if not the best new metal bands of all time. We are going to be discussed, we are going to be discussing Limp Biscuit. So before everybody, if you've been living under a rock, Here's who Limp Biscuit is. Limp Biscuit is an American rap rock band from Jacksonville, Florida, and their lineup consists of Fred Durst, Sam Rivers, John Otto, DJ Lethal, and Wes Borland. Their music is marked by Durst's angry vocal delivery and Borland's sonic experimentation when it comes to guitars. Borland's elevated visual appearance, which has been including body paint and face paint, masks, uniforms, things of that nature, also play a huge role whenever the band does their live shows. The band has been nominated for three Grammy Awards and have sold more than 40 million records worldwide and have won several other awards. Uh, This band formed back in 1994, and they became very popular in the underground music scene in Jacksonville in the late 1990s. And they signed to Flip Records, which is a subsidiary of Intercourt, Intercourse, wow, Interscope, (laughs) which released... Which was wow. released in, in 1997 with three dollar bill, y'all. Now, before we go any further, where were you? Let's kick it off with Roger because Roger, Roger's now uh, joining us for our Rock Retrospective series. Now, this is his first time on Rock Retrospective. So, when was the first time you heard Lint Biscuit? Um, it has to be. I mean, my, my older brother used to listen to them. Um, and on the summers we would hang out and just play video games and everything and that's when i'm pretty sure i heard them for the first time um my like earliest memory is of like pretty much playing mario kart and just listening to them um over and over again you know just jamming (laughs) out um i'd have to say i was like i was probably seven or eight so it's probably probably not 90 99 when i heard 98 sorry when i heard them um uh, so yeah, I was pretty young overall, but I mean, that's what happens when you have over, older siblings, you get to hear music ahead of your time. Right. So man, Mario Kart and Limp Biscuit. That, 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 is there anything more nineties than that? <laughs> uh, probably not. Probably not. All you need is an ecto cooler and a fucking, uh, uh, Dunkaroo. <laughs> yeah, right. an ecto cooler and a Dunkaroo. There you yeah, go. Yeah. Straight diabetes. Hey, them some bitches are back in the stores now. So hey, hell yeah. Um, so Chip, I'll ask the same question to you. When was the first time you heard the band Lint Biscuit? Uh I would say probably it was ninety-eight, uh, when they released the song Faith. Okay. Yeah, um that was my first delve into what Limp Biscuit was. Uh and I was, I've been hooked since. I mean, still to this day, I will put Limp Biscuit on and just vibe out. I was actually, when I was shaving my head earlier, uh, I was listening to Limp Biscuit. So, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say for me, first time I ever heard them, I was uh, actually at home. I was sick from school uh, and I was just laying in on the uh, living room couch. And I had the TV in my hand. And back then, you couldn't just hit a button and then it goes to the guide. You actually had to flip through the actual channels. So I'm flipping through, and I ended up stopping on MTV. And this was back when MTV actually played music videos. Yes, kids, MTV used to play music videos. 
Uh, so, and I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, I hear, mellow out! I'm like, what the fuck is this? You know, that ding 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 So, then I was, I started listening to it, and it was Limp Biscuit. It was actually the song Sour. And I was like, huh. You know, and I started listening to it and everything, and I was like, okay, that was kind of, you know, a little bit more of a groove and things like that. So, uh, and I was like, okay, this is really, really cool. Um, and then it wasn't until... A little while later, because you know how sometimes they'll play music videos from different years. You know, it's not like most music videos. They'll play like a Metallica song from like the 80s or something, like throw it into like current modern music and stuff like that. Right. I then about a couple of maybe a guy, I don't even know how many, how much time passed by. But then that's when I heard the song uh, Counterfeit for the first time, which was their first music video. And then I heard Counterfeit and I heard that and I was just like. Well, I like that song better than I did Sour. Like, holy shit. Like, this band's insane, you know? And then it was a little bit after that that I heard the song Faith. And I was like, oh. And then it was actually my mom who told me, are they singing a George Michael song? And I look at her and I'm like, what are you talking about? And she was like, do you not know that song? And I'm like, I mean, it's Faith by Limp Biscuit. She goes, no, that's a George Michael song. And I'm like, Who's George Michael? And that's when she told me, and you got the old records and stuff like that. So she put it on the record player or cassette tape or whatever it was. And then she we she heard, let me hear that one. And I looked at her and I'm like, yeah, I like Lint Biscuit's version better. <laughs> that didn't really go over too well. But yeah. So, and of course, obviously we'll kick it off with the, uh, the actual album, $3 Bill, y'all, uh, which came out in 1997. Um, did you guys, I mean, Roger, you said you didn't experience Limp Biscuit until much, much later. I mean, so, like two um, years later. Right, but I'm saying, like, have you heard this album in any, aside from maybe the song Faith or Counterfeit, like, have you heard this album? Um, Randomly on Spotify, um, I do have a Limp Biscuit like, playlist pretty much, but it's not one I'm one I, like, I seek out or anything. Like, I don't remember what's the top of my head of, like, that album really existed. Um, I think really, uh, I can't really say which one. I think I think Counterfeit and Faith might be the only ones I do remember, like every now and then. But it's not one that I I seek out personally. Right. What about, what about you, Chip? Um. Yeah. I mean, this was probably their weakest showing, uh, for an album. Uh, it would either be between this one or their most recent release. Uh, with Gold Cobra, and I know we'll come up on that uh, here shortly. Um, it was very not a memorable album. Uh, like like Roger said, you know, between Faith and Counterfeit and maybe uh, Sour, um, those were like, you know, the handful of songs that were even halfway decent on this album. Right. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, uh, not a very memorable album at all. Yeah, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the album for me, I mean, and I did, I do have the album, and I've heard the album all the way through. Um, <clears throat> if you listen to the intro of the album, it actually almost sounds like you know you're listening to a sermon. You know where you know where he was like, "Use your vehicle of salvation, my brothers, go by." It almost sounds like you're listening to David Koresh or somebody like that. You know, it's, it's what it, I guess because that's what kind of lulled you into the album. 
and then the first song you hear is the song pollution which i enjoyed the song um you know which at the time you know which obviously would you what you guys said sour counterfeit faith those are the three main songs that people really do remember um there was also the song uh leech but it was the demo version of the song and really that song was basically about people who literally hang on to everyone and think that they're owed something just because they know somebody i think everybody knows somebody the hanger-ons who feel like they because they know that person they should be getting just as much credit even though they didn't do jack shit but just stand by somebody's side you, you, you see what i'm saying yeah the ones who like you have someone here who busts his ass does all the work and then you got the one person say hey i'm over here i'm your biggest supporter can i get the same shit you get like you didn't do anything you, you know thank you for your support but what do you want from me you know you know it, you know i thank you i appreciate you like i'll give you a shout out like but what you know what else do you want you know and, and that's basically what the song leech was about um and that song is probably the most i would say maybe i would say aggressive in a sense um which there are other songs on here that's not as good like stuck wasn't that good stalemate wasn't that good clunk was clunk's the worst song on the album i think um but indigo flow was another one because that was more indigo flow was more hip-hop like that was kind of like fred's attempt at like hip-hop you know but although this album isn't really considered one of their better albums it is it still went double platinum in 2001 so you know maybe that maybe it had maybe it was good enough for some people to say yeah we enjoy it we'll just have it as part of part of like our like lint biscuit collection or something along those lines or something right um i would i would like to know how many people have lint biscuits actual first album uh it was like a four track ep uh called mental aqueducts yeah uh I, I would like to know who has actually ever heard it or owns it. No, I don't have a clue. I, I never yeah. even heard it. That must have been something from the underground music scene that was in Jacksonville at the time. Um, it was, it was like I said, it was like a four-album EP released in like 95. Um, so, wow. Yeah, that, that that's crazy, you know, and then... And of course, I mean, a lot of people just remember because when you hurt, when you hear, you know, the band for the first time, you you hear some scratching a little bit. Um, and it's DJ Lethal, and we most people know DJ Lethal from being a part of House of Pain, you know. Um, you know, not many people knew, you know. And then everybody else, you're like, well, who are these new people, you know? Um, so you go from three dollar bill, y'all, uh, and then you jump over to probably their biggest commercial success. But before we get into that. They did actually go on tour with a couple of people. They actually joined the Warp Tour uh, for a while, and the Warp Tour is not necessarily known for new metal bands. You know, when you think of the Warp Tour, who do you what what bands do you normally think of? Blink One Eighty Two. Yeah, you think of like Blink One Eighty Two, Green Day, fucking. It's a it's a punk it's a punk t- uh, band. Thing. Yeah, it's like a pop punk band kind of thing. Simple plans, shit like that. But, you know, and they did a thing. They performed alongside Pennywise, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Sick of It All, Blink-182. Um, you know, and um, it wasn't until later on when they actually worked with, like, guys like Primus and the Deftones, Limp Bizkit headlined the Ladies' Night of uh, Cabaret uh, Club Tour. 
and you know the plan you know successfully it basically what it did was they did that tour specifically to increase their female fan base which happened to happen um and then in 1998 Limp Bizkit toured with Soulfly and Cold on the Soulfly's first European tour which gave them a little bit more of an international um appeal um so you know and uh you know then they performed at Ozfest and things like that and then they later was a part of Korn's Family Values tour. Yeah, you guys remember the Family Values tour? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was, it was so interesting because it combined. I remember the very first one from like 1998, when it was Corn, Lint Biscuit, Incubus, Orgy, Ramstein, and Ice Cube was on there. You know, like you mean Ramstein? Huh? I'm sorry. Say what now? Ramstein. Ramstein. Yeah. Not Ram. Ramstein, Ramstein, you say tomato, <laughs> I say fuck you. Um, you, know, just, you know, and then they did it again in 1999 when it was corn, lint, biscuit. This time, Stain, Promise, and Stain and Promise joined, but also they added a little bit more hip hop to it. They had Mob Deep, they had Ja Rule, Method Man, and Red Man. And then the actual last year of the tour when it was in 2001 had Stone Temple Pilots, Linkin Park, Static X, Dead Z, uh, you know, bands like that. Um, which before we jump into that, let's actually jump to the very next album that they did, which was in my humble opinion. I know we, I know me and Chip differ on it, but in my humble opinion, I think it's the third greatest new metal album of all time. Chip has it as the best new metal album of all time. We can agree to disagree. Um, and then you have Roger. I don't know where exactly you place this album. Significant other. Where do you place it? As far as like significance amongst not only just their album uh pro portfolio but like overall um of just new metal yeah, just new metal yeah, like no, anything no from metal. like 1995 to 2004 or something um probably in the top five i can't pinpoint a position for sure but in the top five okay. um yeah, I'd have to think about it a lot. Uh, but they they definitely put this album's definitely in the top five. Little Biscuit would probably have two albums in the top five for me. Interesting. Yeah. Two albums in the top five. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I got two albums in the top ten. I think. Yeah, but you don't have any system. Oh, no, I got. None. I'm sorry. Two uh, albums in the top fifteen. Chip two albums in the top ten. I'm sorry. Yeah, I gotta go back and that. that. Say what? Say what? You guys, you guys don't even have System of Down in the top five. So we will talk about. Okay, we're not talking about a trash <laughs> ass band like System of oh Down. Oh my we're gosh! Listen here, sir. All right, calm down, girls. You're both pretty. Now let's go. So we will talk about System of a Down in a later edition of Rock Retrospective. But for now, let's continue to stay on Lint Biscuit. Uh, the album Significant Other received high commercial sales, peaking at number one on the U.S. Billboard 200 critically received and as favorable with many responding well to the unique sound that the band produced and the performances being live, which was considered a gigantic improvement over the band's debut album. And the album itself has sold over 16 million copies worldwide. So very, very different from, because you can listen to $3 bill y'all. And then you can listen to uh, significant other, and you can clearly see a world of difference between them two albums. Yeah, um, I mean, this was also probably better produced overall too. So I don't know. 
I guess them touring with all those bands finally got them a, like the sound and style that they wanted. I guess. Right. Well, I mean, the, the album was produced by Terry Date, who is basically. I mean, he's no Rick Rubin, but he has produced a lot of great music for bands like Dream Theater, Soundgarden, uh, Deftones, Slipknot, White Zombie, Pantera. So yeah, he definitely has a lot of good uh, albums under his belt. Um, so let me ask you guys, like, what was like when you look at like? I mean, we can start it from the beginning. Like, the first song that you remember hearing from this, I mean, it would have to be Nookie, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. definitely. That the video alone just. I can still picture it every time, like I hear the beginning of it, just a weird like color scheme for the video of him running through the streets and everything, then going to the concert and all of that. Like I still remember it pretty clearly. That it, yeah, yeah, that was a very awesome video. I think, which was what what's cool about that particular video, and uh, what it the the end of that video transitioned into the beginning of the next video, which was the song rearranged. Yep. Yeah. Well, how'd you guys feel about that particular song? Um, it's probably it's my favorite song by them. Oh, okay. Any particular reason why? Um, no, it's. I mean, <laughs> I, I like. I mean, no particular reason. It's just one that I've always like connected with the most. Um, especially the video, I like it the most. I mean, it was them going to trial for their quote unquote controversy, controversy, and everything. They talk about it. Uh, then the execution is them being like put in a chamber and just like drowning and everything like that. And then the line heavy is the head that wears the crown. Like that's always stuck with me. It's just, I don't know. Like just the way the song starts pretty slow, then picks up and then goes right back down to be slow. Like, I don't know. It's just, like I said, it's the one that's always stuck with me the most. What about you, Chip? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, off this album, like probably the two most popular, are, are nookie and break stuff uh and then you you get into like um what's the song uh in together now with method man right. has a very um crossover platform to it uh but for me it, it the my favorite songs on this album uh it's either rearranged or no sex with um aaron lewis yeah yeah, that was a good one. I I enjoy break stuff. Um, it, it it break stuff. When I hear break stuff now, it has a it it hits me a little bit different today. Um, just because that was Drew Games music for a very very long time, and um, every time I hear it, it makes me think that motherfucker. You know, <laughs> you know, like I it, it'll make me think of like a funny story or something he said or something he did. You know, so you know, every time I hear that song, I always think of Drew. You know, so. To oh, me, yeah. <clears throat> to yeah. me, break stuff is a Kyle anthem, um, <laughs> and what I mean by that is that that song gets played. Somebody's ripping a bunch of monsters and punching holes in the wall, uh, drywall. <laughs> yeah, like that's that's what that song is. It's, it's a Kyle anthem, <laughs> right? Yeah, like definitely. Like I, <laughs> I have the the uh, sentimental value to it because of drew um but it's one of those songs that was like completely overplayed um and you just heard it and even even to this day it's one of those like just overplayed uh for stupid reasons and then like roger said you know it's definitely like an anthem for kyle 
<laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry, Kyle, if you have to be listening to this episode. <laughs> um, you know, the funny thing though about this album is, d- does anybody remember the deluxe edition of this album? Um, I don't think I had the deluxe edition. I, I think I just had the regular. <coughs> um, sorry about that. Um, I don't think I did have it either, but I do remember it being out there. Okay, so the deluxe edition featured a song by a gentleman that I would say is the greatest hip hop hip hop artist alive today. It was Limp Biscuit and Eminem together hmm. on a song called "Turn Me Loose." Hmm. Anybody remember that song? I can't nope. off the top of my head. I don't remember it. No, no. It's back when they were. That's back when they were cool with each other. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> um. So, uh, if if you get a chance, go go look that song up, and uh, I may even try to find it and send it to you guys. Uh, pretty positive it's on YouTube. Right. I'm sure it is. Uh, but now, nah, but you have brought up in together now. Um, when I heard this song, I thought it was like I legit thought it was a Method Man song featuring Fred Durst of Limp Biscuit. But no, it was a Limp Biscuit song featuring Method Man. And I thought, wait a second, how did this? Like, what happened? You know, um, you know, and it was a dope song. Like, I mean, I I was like, it, it kind of it kept Fred Durst to his like his hip hop roots, you know, along because it really wasn't a whole lot of like heavy guitars or anything of that nature. It was just you know, a simple, uh, you know, hip hop beat, you know, and, um, you know, like I really enjoyed that song from a, from a hip hop perspective, you know? Right. Um, but I do think that it was the one song, even though, even though it's a good song, it was the one song that kind of didn't fit the album. If that makes sense. Because so many, because there was like, oh, there was like heaviness and, there was a couple of other ones that had some rap essence to it, but there was always like a headbanging element to a lot of the other songs. This one, this one was, even though it was a good song, like I said, it felt kind of separate from the rest of the album. Like it, they kind of threw it in there just to see if people would get a reaction out of it, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely see that. Yeah. Uh, and, and hindsight being 2020, I, I could definitely see uh, In Together Now fitting better on their next album than on this album, but I don't think without uh, In Together that their their third album would have been as good or gotten as much play from the hip-hop community as it did. Absolutely. And, this, and, and also, this was around the time unfortunately because i mean this was just i mean it was the way that it was um this was at a time uh when (laughs) when in the summer of 1999 i think you guys are about to know where i'm headed with this woodstock yep woodstock woodstock uh limp biscuit played at the highly anticipated woodstock 99 show in front of approximately 200,000 people yeah, try getting 200,000 people in a venue today with everything going on. Um, hell, you can barely get 2,000 people, 200 people in a room today. Um, of course, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but anyway, violent action sprang up during the during and after their performance, including fans tearing plywood from the walls during the performance of the song Break Stuff. As Roger, Told you. Yeah, as Roger Kyle, said, the Kyle Anthem. Kyle <laughs> um, Anthem. 
Several sexual assaults were reported in the aftermath of the concert. Uh, Fred Durst stated during the concert, people are getting hurt. Don't let anyone get hurt. Don't, uh, but I don't think you should mellow out. That's what Alanis Morissette Moore had you motherfuckers do. If anyone falls, pick them up, which I'm going to pause right there because Chip, you and me have gone to several concerts. How many times have we seen bands that will literally stop a show just to make sure that somebody is okay if they see them fall? Uh, I mean, like quite literally the first band I ever seen stop an entire set uh, because somebody fell in the pit was Volbeat. Yes. Yeah. Um, it was that Project 961, right? Yeah, it was Project 961 tour. And uh, they literally like were in the middle of a set. Pit was going. Uh, somebody goes down in the pit. And like they keep playing for a second. And dude never comes up out of the pit. And they literally just fucking stop. And they're like, all right, all right, all right. Pick him the fuck up. Uh, so they get him up, and he's like, "Okay, uh, all right." And then he just started the song like back from from the beginning, and was like, "All right, another motherfucker goes down. You pick him up, or we ain't playing no more." Yeah, yeah, and that right there earned me a ton of respect from uh, Volby, and I was like, "Man, these motherfuckers get it," you know. And then you see it like I don't know if it's just something that's just a general rule of thumb in the metal community. If somebody goes down, you pick them up. Um, but yeah, but like, I mean, it was established like that day, like, yo, and you, you even had guys like Ivan Moody from five Finger death punch say, Hey, if someone falls down, we're all brothers and sisters here, pick them up. You know, um, like there was an instance where I, I, I'm like, I'm gonna keep the story short. I got trucked in the pit, lost my glasses. I was like, Oh shit. The big motherfucker that trucked me, picked me up and gave me my glasses and said, sorry, buddy. And I was like, Thanks, asshole. <laughs> Hey, but at least, you know what? At least he had the common courtesy to pick me up. So whatever. I was happy. My glasses look fucked up as hell. I mean, I try to fix them the best way I could, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Continuing on. <laughs> I'll nah, speak you, you, but no. I was covered in dust. It was, it was hilarious. And that's the last time I mosh in front of fucking uh, Fozzie ever again. <laughs> I told Rich Ward that story when I was at Southern Honor back on the second. He just laughed. He was like, yeah, if I'd have known, I'd told him to stop the band pick. I'm like, no, you wouldn't have. He goes, yeah, I wouldn't have. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, Fred Durst then continued when he said that you know, we're, we already let out the negative energy, so let's bring in some of the positive energy. Now, during later, he said in an interview that he didn't see anybody get hurt. He said, you know, you, he didn't see anybody get hurt. You don't see that kind of stuff when you're looking out into the sea of humanity. You know, you all you can see is about maybe 20 feet in between. There's maybe 20 feet between where you are and where the beginning of the people are. So really, the only thing you're doing is just feeling the music and then feeling their energy. Really can't see when anything bad's going on, you know. Like, I mean, when you like, I remember when me and Chip wrestled at the Forum in Rome. That place can probably hold, I don't know, maybe thirteen hundred, fourteen hundred people. Maybe we walk out there, and I don't know what the exact number was of who we performed in front of, but I didn't see them. The only people I seen was just the people who was around the ring because that's where the lights were. If you brought the house lights up and I walked out and seen that many people, I would have probably been freaked a little bit because, I mean, that is a whole shit ton of people that you'll be embarrassing yourself in front of if something goes wrong, you know? Um, but, yeah, this album was definitely, like what you said, I mean, the, the Kyle anthem, if you would, um, which they basically got scapegoated for the event and, you know, got a ton of criticism for it. Um, 
which in hindsight, going back and looking at the rearranged video, kind of makes it a little bit apropos, I guess, because so many people were accusing them of, you know, fucking everything up and things like that, which can you really blame a band for the music that they play? And then it's the typical, you know, blaming a band because, you know, a kid did something fucked up kind of deal. Uh, yeah, I mean, for years and years and years, people have been blaming music for for different things. I mean, I, I remember my mom telling me, uh, and this is a little off subject to a degree, but like she was a huge Elvis fan and he would get blamed for uh, shit all the time. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, because too prerogative. He was. Yeah, he was too too prerogative um or provocative i'm sorry provocative yeah. um and you know uh when he was on tv they wouldn't film him but anywhere from the hips up uh or, or from the waist up you know so they you wouldn't be able to see him dancing really uh because they thought that the way he moved his hips um so it was sexual suggestions um so I mean, yeah, people have been blaming music for years upon years upon years. Uh, so it's no no secret or, or no wonder why they would, you know, take this song where the guy's literally telling you to break shit and be like, okay, that's the song that made them do it right there. That's yep. the one. Yep. I mean, no. Because especially, I mean, if you're at a concert and you're drunk as shit, I mean, definitely, you know, you're going to have a different view and a different interpretation of what the song is going to say. I mean, that's like, you know, that's like the whole thing with like, and again, I, I don't want to venture too far off of the subject, but it's kind of like the whole thing at the Col at, with Columbine. You know, those, you know, those two kids shot up a fucking school, you know, you know, regardless of the reasons why they did it, it's a tragedy nonetheless, you know, but they blame fucking Eminem and Marilyn Manson and Ramstein, you know, they blamed they blamed everybody else except for the people who fucking did the shootings, you know, and they want to blame video, violent video games and they want to blame so many other things, you know, and people and I know I've even heard some people say, you know, with, you know, they were bullied or they had mental illness or whatever the situation was. And regardless of what how you want to explain it or what excuse you want to make for it. Several kids, teenagers, died that day for no fucking reason. You see what I'm saying? Um, so can you really blame Marilyn Manson or Ramstein or Eminem for what these kids did? No. Just the same way yes. you can't blame Limp Biscuit for causing a fucking riot and sexual assaults because of a song called Break Stuff. You see what I'm saying? I would say yes and no. Um, okay. And what I mean by that is those thoughts have to be there already. And the the music, and it, not just music, but in this case, music, is just amplifying those thoughts. I mean, that's if you look at it, it the same way, like if you're sitting around the house and you're thinking, man, I'm going to go drink some whiskey, you know, and your buddy comes over and he's like, Hey man, let's get that whiskey. You're gonna go drink the whiskey. You know, you're you're more 
the, the chances of you drinking more because of peer pressure when it's already on your mind is significantly more than if you're just sitting around thinking that you want to drink uh, in the same sense that if you're thinking about breaking some shit and <laughs> a song comes on that says, Hey, break some shit. You're like, Oh, yeah, well, they fucking told me to do it. <laughs> you know, not realizing it, that it's something that you're already thinking about. The thoughts are there and everything. And I think that goes, you know, tenfold across the way. Um, right. I mean, I've been playing grand theft auto for as long as I can remember. I've never thought, well, shit, I'm going to go break into this car and steal it, you know? Right, right. I I played Mortal Kombat. Never once have I ever thought that I would be able to produce a dragon to bite somebody in half. I mean, it just, you know, you have to be mature enough to know that this is, it's an art form. Music is an art form. Video games are an art form. Books are an art form you know yeah and you you can't blame an art form for something that's already going wrong in your brain right i i agree with that 100 percent um you know it's just tragedy is you know it, it's it's just it's just sad when tragedy happens and they put some they put it on something else and they put the ovus over on something else you know um, they always need a scapegoat for something exactly um so roger any thoughts I mean, uh, I grew I mean, I literally grew up in the time of where this was a major thing. Bob Dole literally tried to blame video games and music for everything during my era. Uh, I remember Mortal Kombat getting a lot of flag, Grand Theft Auto getting a lot of flag. I do remember Lim Biscuit, uh, Biggie, Tupac, all that stuff. I remember all that when I was growing up. Just, but nobody ever wants to talk about the real issue, and that's these kids mentality to begin with like where does that stem from like what is the issue what can we do to better it and everything but i mean uh i grew up playing all these games listening to all this music i'm not over here shooting up anybody i'm not over here like just robbing people or anything like that it's i mean you can't blame art for that i know everybody says that life imitates art and art imitates life and stuff but there is a line and sometimes people just want to blame something instead of actually figuring out what the issue is. Right, right. I mean, I think Eminem even said it in the song The Way I Am. He said, you know, when a dude's getting bullied and shoots up to school, they blame it on Maryland and the heroin. Well, where were the parents at? Look where it's at, middle America. Now it's a tragedy. Yeah, you know, so, you know, that, and then it says, and they attack Eminem because the rap is way, but that's for a different discussion. Um, but, through all this, you know, Lint Biscuit, you know, they, you know, basically they became the scapegoat. And despite this controversy, despite it all, Significant Other remained number one on the Billboard charts and the band headlined the Family Values Tour that year and all that. So next we come to 2000. And in 2000, Fred announces. Hold on, come out. Isn't that the same year that um, Fred Durst joined with. Um... Aaron Lewis from Stained and gave us the song. Oh my God! Yes, 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 Outside. yes. I, I didn't know if you were the acoustic version of that song. I didn't know which if is the version. 
Yeah, I didn't know if you wanted to wait for the stained retrospective before we jumped onto that. But no, we can go ahead and do that one as well. Well, uh, just that song. Yeah, just a song. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that was probably, you know, we, we talked about it on several episodes earlier. And it was a, such a raw performance of uh, Aaron Lewis and with Fred, because Fred basically helped Stain get on, uh, because St- uh, Stain, uh, as what, like what you talked about earlier before we started recording, Stain is the only artist that's left on Flip Records. And uh, when Biscuit originally was on Flip Records, and, you know, he helped. People don't Fred Durst don't get enough credit for a lot of the bands that he helped. He helped bands like Stained and Cold and Puddle of Mud, bands like that. Uh, but yeah, just a very real raw performance uh, from that. In fact, I like that version, the live version of that song, better than their studio uh, version of it. Um, so. Roger, what say you about that song? Yes, sir. Uh, I like it. it. It is definitely better than their studio version of it. Uh, and I say not because I really don't like acoustics or like songs like that really but it is a better song um, I do have to admit uh, I think I remember wasn't it on like an MTV Unplugged or something maybe I, I remember seeing it on something like that I just can't remember what it was for sure it was uh, on the Family Values tour it was like one of the last stops on the Family Values tour and all it was was just Aaron Lewis and Stain, Aaron Lewis and uh, Fred Durst on stage just him just with an acoustic guitar and nothing else and then they would do like screenshots of the cloud holding the lighters up and then they would cut to like different home videos and tour bus videos and shit like that of uh aaron and his because this was around the time that his daughter zoe was born so you know it was kind of like a wholesome you know kind of like family thing kind of deal you know yeah but roger i do think that you're right that they did a uh an mtv unplugged version of this as well yeah i mean yeah they they did do an uh an unplugged uh episode i think that's where i remember it from more to be honest okay all right so then we go from that to (laughs) a hilarious title for the uh the chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water Chip, would you like to share with our listeners exactly what that title means? <laughs> well, for the the people in attendance, <laughs> not know what a chocolate starfish is. Um, it is basically you are if you call somebody <laughs> or something a chocolate starfish, uh, you are talking about your asshole. <laughs> The whole, anus. the whole of it. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, <laughs> what Fred Durst said is, is the album title was intended to sound like a fictional band. Um, you know. <laughs> right? Sure. But the phrase, <laughs> you know, chocolate starfish refers to the human anus and Durst himself, who had frequently been called an asshole... <laughs> <laughs> so, so how the hell did the, did the hot dog flavored water thing come about well that came about from west borland uh they the band were standing around at a truck stop looking at bottles of flavored water you know grape and cherry and lemon and watermelon or whatever and borland made the joke that uh that the truck stop had every flavor of water except hot dog flavored water 
and so it just kind of stuck and they came up with the chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water that's crazy <laughs> hey, uh, hey hey time out real quick before we before we continue on i had one more thought that i that i totally forgot about um back in 1999 also um Limp Biscuit won for won the uh, best rock video at the MTV VMAs for the song uh, "Break Stuff," and it was also on that night that the bass player from Rage Against the Machine stormed the stage and climbed that trestle that was behind it, and they and they had to at a protest because he felt like Rage Against the Machine's song "Sleep Now in the Fire" should have won. Y'all remember that shit? Uh, uh, vaguely. Yeah, right off the top of my head, dude. Yeah, I mean, he was up there a good like twenty minutes, and Limp Bizkit just sat there and said, "Um, okay, can we get security?" Uh, all right, never mind. Fuck it. Thanks, guys. We appreciate it. <laughs> and that was it. Um, so yeah, so I think when you when you think of chocolate starfish and hot dog flavored water, uh, you know, it was very, 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 uh, you know, successful. You know, debuted at number one on the Billboard 200, selling 1.054 million copies in its first week alone. And 400,000 of those copies were sold the first day, which at the time was the largest first week sales uh, for a rock album in U.S. history. And this this is since the Nielsen SoundScan has been tracking albums since 1991. Um, you know, so... I mean, it's currently ranked, as far as first week sales, it's currently ranked overall at 17th. Um, and there have been other albums that have been, you know, that sold more within a week. Uh, number one is the album 25 by the artist Adele at 3.378 million. That's right. Uh, you know, um, but that album in and of itself was just insane. Like, I, I really enjoyed this album. I don't think there's a bad song on this album if there is i mean <laughs> i mean if, if there is i mean you'd have to be like, like like a serious hater of a a particular song um but when i think of this song the first thing i think of is you know if only we could fly it does that thing going you know and then of course the song my generation um when you guys first heard this particular i don't know if it was the first song that you guys heard on the album or not but how would you feel what was you feeling about the song my generation I love it. Uh, yeah, I think it's a great song. Right. I, I mean, this album, in my opinion, is, is obviously their best album, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I think so. All their music starts at like a, a 7 out of 10, and it none of them really drop below a... Uh, maybe a 6 is the lowest, but everything else stays high. Like, everything is good quality, really good. I mean, I probably can listen to this album all day, every day, top to bottom. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's I mean, it starts off really, really heavy. Um, even with, even the song "Hot Dog" is heavy, you know. And it's like you wouldn't think because it's that ding, like what the fuck? Where did that sound come from? You know, very different sound. Um, and then of course the song, um, I guess the song that a lot of people remember, I guess mainstream people kind of remember it a little bit more uh, was the song "My Way." And I, I'm not going to lie, when I first saw My Way, I thought, holy fuck, they did a Frank Sinatra cover. <laughs> uh, I really remember it mostly for the uh, promo video for Austin and the Rock for WrestleMania X7. Uh, 
still my favorite video package in wrestling history and it just flows so well perfectly uh i love it like i said this is probably in my opinion my favorite album and their best album uh, it may be my favorite song in the album uh it's a toss-up but it might be it's either one or number two for me Limp Biscuit was WWE's favorite band around this time, you'd think. Yeah, it was them followed by Saliva. Right, Chip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, this is Limp Biscuit and, and Saliva were probably the two biggest um bands according to WWE at this time. Right. Um, but uh the song My Generation great song i love it right uh, what's so crazy about that music video um and i know we i know we were talking about my way but it, it, i thought it was just it was interesting um if i could just throw this out there to a, a few things it says that uh okay hold on a second because i just i clicked on the one i was i was wanting to click on one that was specific, specific. okay no no, no no i'm sorry i'm i'm thinking of something different never mind Never mind. I'm thinking of something different. Because I thought it was my generation that we talked about, but no, it's not my generation. It's actually the song Rolling. But go on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, my generation was a really good one um, from the standpoint that it was like you actually heard a little bit more of DJ Lethal's uh, scratching towards like almost like after the first bridge or after the second bridge of the song. Uh, yeah. And it was like, it. I mean, honestly, my generation, it was almost like an anthem for like the new millennium you know, if you will, for that, because also at the time, Total Request Live was getting, was like, still prominent, and when you thought of Total Request Live, you thought about, you know, the boy bands, and the pop princesses, and the former Disney stars, but then you had, like, the emergence of, like, the, the new rock artists that were coming out in 2000, like, bands like, you know, Limp Biscuit and Corn and Kid Rock and you know bands like that that really you know started taking over a little bit and it was like I think Limp Biscuit's song the, the, my generation specifically was like number one on TRL for like two weeks straight or something like that. Yeah, I mean, the chorus of of the song My Generation, uh, it literally defined a generation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the chorus says, it literally says, so go ahead and talk shit, talk shit about me. Go ahead and talk shit about my generation because we don't give a fuck and we won't ever give a fuck until you give a fuck about me and my generation. And coming up, you know, in, you know, being born in the, the 80s and, you know, being raised in the 90s, this was, I mean, this was our fucking theme song. Right. Right, you know, right. and to the point that, I mean, I guess you could say that most of us probably feel the same way because we're that kind of middle generation between, like, you got the boomers, the Gen Xers, and then the millennials, but people that were born in my era, we usually get clumped in with one or the other, either Gen Xers or millennials. Right. Um, and we're kind of a, a generation of our own. There's like this right. 10 year span of uh, kids right. or adults now, but you know, definitely 
this was our fucking anthem. Right. Like I would say any anybody from that was one from like eighty one to eighty seven or something, right? Or eighty eight or something like that. That that like pretty much anybody born in the eighties kind of has that mentality in some in some way or in some perspective. I wasn't um, born in the eighties. What what year were you born? Ninety two. Mm. But you were touched by the previous generation though. I'm gonna assume. I mean, my brother's older, so yeah. Yeah, but that's but that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, you if you were around your brother a lot and he listened to this type of music, then you were touched by the previous generation. You know, we talk about it a lot of time with with Kobe Bryant, how he was right. He, Kobe Bryant was that guy that was right in between Jordan and LeBron. He was touched by that previous generation. That's why so many people believe he was a more. He, that's why some people believe he was closer to Michael than you know LeBron ever was. But that's for a different discussion, different time. The no, but. My personal favorite song on the album, and I'm sorry, you can call me a Mark Ford all you want, I don't give a shit. I love the song Rolling. I love the song Rolling. You know, yes, Which it was one? Undertaker's theme song. Don't Which give a one? shit. Um, both of them. I like both of them. I like the Air Raid vehicle, and I like the Urban Assault vehicle that he did with, with that they did with uh, DMX, Method Man, and Redman. Um, but Rolling was the one uh, that. You see the music video for it, and you're like, "Oh shit!" Like, you know, like the whole they got the the girls dressed up like them and everything like that, and um, you know, it was really, really crazy how. Uh, God, F- interesting fact about the video: the video itself cost three million dollars to produce. It's a lot of money, and well, they had everybody and their mama in the video. Right? Yeah. They had to pay them. Um, interestingly enough. Roland, if you've ever seen the music video for the song Roland, you know that it's filmed on uh it's filmed on top of the World Trade Center. And it's and it says that Roland, the video received the award for best rock video at the 2001 MTV Video Music Awards that would that premiered it, it on September 10th of 2001, one day before the terrorist attacks that took place on 9/11. And Lint Biscuit received a letter from the World Trade Center thanking them for having featured the towers in their music video. Because the very last shot of the actual music video for Roland is the helicopter zooming away from the Twin Towers. Yeah, well, you know, it's ironic about them doing that on top of the Twin Towers. Yeah. Um, so during this time, they did what's known as a guerrilla tour. Um, and guerrilla tours would be where a band would go up and illegally set up and form impromptu gigs on rooftops and in alleyways. Yep. Rage Against the Machine did it all the time. They still do. Yeah. Um, so Limp Biscuit did that and there, there is thought that the original playing of, um, this song on top of the World Trade Center was an illegal uh, guerrilla part of of an illegal guerrilla tour. Oh. I don't believe that because I don't think how in the hell you get up there, you know. I mean, this, we're talking about world trade. Yeah, somebody would have to see you. Somebody would have to see you fucking bring a drum set and amp speakers and multiple guitars for multiple takes and shit like that. Like somebody would have had to have seen you do it. Um. Which is so crazy because like that it reminds me of, you know when, you know I'm sitting here watching we were you know this was around Christmas time we were watching Home Alone two, um and 
I was watching, I was like, man, it's crazy how they filmed that and they didn't even know. And my son kind of heard what I said and he looked at me and he goes, what do you mean, daddy? I'm like, well, you see that building that Kevin McAllister is on right now? He goes, yeah. I said, that building and the building next to it, they're no, they, they're no longer there anymore. And then he was like, why are they no longer there, daddy? I said, well, back in 2001, a bunch of bad people flew some planes into the uh, towers and the towers are no longer there anymore. And then he goes, why'd they, throw the plane, why'd they fly the planes into the tower? And it immediately hit me. It's like, holy fuck, I have to explain what happened to what happened to my what happened on 9-11 to my seven-year-old son. And it's like, oh, shit, he's already asking questions. I ain't ready for this conversation. But apparently he is, so I had to break it down and explain it to him. So it was, I mean, that's like, you know, but that, but that was our, I mean, that shit was our generation, you know? I mean, that, that would be like me asking, you know, my mom, you know, like, you know, where were you during, you know, like, well, how'd you guys feel about the Vietnam War? Asking my grandparents, you know, when Kennedy was assassinated or something like that, you know, that's, it's weird, you know, trying to explain shit like that to them now you know um but anyway back onto the subject do you guys remember the song take a look around yeah yeah it was uh part of the mission impossible 3 soundtrack yeah Yeah. i thought it was very interesting how it would start off kind of mission impossible like yeah hey hey, don't do too much we don't have enough money to uh pay for royalties uh (laughs) that was that was a joke yeah, we oh, got it. it. Okay, cool. Oh, was it? Okay. Wasn't no, funny. Just you got it. Okay, cool. Round anyway. of applause, everybody. Round of applause. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, that being said, though, <laughs> he's being a dick. I ain't worried about him. Uh, but anyway, though, um, were there any other album, any other songs on this album that you guys particularly love that not didn't really get a whole lot of play as far as like you know singles or stuff like that? Uh, yeah. For me, uh, the song Boiler was really good i really like that song um one song that fred durst got a shit ton of flack over uh living it up which was um it came out right around the same time that zoolander came out yeah Um, and so ben siller was in the song or he was mentioned in the song he was in the video but um during the 2000 MTV VMAs, Fred Durst performed this song as a duet with Christina Aguilera. Yep. Uh, and in response to all of the negative reaction, because it's a good song, but I just don't think it... I remember vaguely hearing it with Christina Aguilera and didn't think that it was as good as the studio version. Right. Um. So... In response to that, Fred Durst said, look, guys, I already told you, I did it all for the Nookie. (laughs) Implying that he got Christina Aguilera, you know, to do this for the song, or she agreed to do the song as a trade for having sex with him or something. And um, she commented later and was like, look, look, he didn't get no Nookie. So, right. And that that was probably what Eminem was referring to in the song "The Real Slim Shady" when he's like, "It's like, but Slim, wouldn't you win? Wouldn't it be weird? Why? So you guys can just lie to get me here?" And it's like, so I can sit next to Carson Daly and Fred Durst and hear him argue over who she gave head to first. Holy shit! Right, jumping at you know, you know, throwing shade at both Fred Durst and Carson Daly, even though Carson really shade though. Say what now? I wouldn't say that was shade. He was he was throwing shade at at her, but I don't yeah. get really. I mean, Fred Durst was in the music video, so it wasn't like he was, you know, 
I mean, I'm pretty sure he was like, sure, you know what I mean. Um, but he did, but he did fave him at the award show, so you know, yeah. But then my personal favorite song on this album is uh, "Get Your Groove On" with uh, it was Limp Biscuit featuring Exhibit. Yes, yeah. Uh, that was been Exhibit was was getting po- very very popular around this time. The front to back, baby. Front to back. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I can remember literally playing like NFL Blitz with this song on repeat for hours upon hours and just like molly whopping people on Blitz. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, but I, I have to say that probably one of the lesser known songs that's on the deluxe version of this album. Uh, and I know I keep saying talking about the deluxe versions, but uh, if you guys haven't heard it, it's a song with Limp Biscuit and Run DMC. Yep. It's called uh, It's Like That, Y'all. Right. It's like that, y'all. Yeah. I remember that one, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah, it's very, very, um, like, it's been a long, long time since I've heard it. So uh, my memory probably is not as good as y'all's when it comes to that. But yeah, I, I, I think I remember it vague. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it. Um, so, but yeah, that I mean that whole album in and of itself was just a great album. Um, I would definitely say, in terms of their overall library, I would definitely say that Chocolate Starfish is definitely up there as one of their better albums. Like I think that Significant Other is a better new metal album based on the the timeline. But man, God, Chocolate Starfish, Hot Dog Flavored Water is just an amazing album altogether. Uh, but it was also at this time that in 2001 that Durst released a statement on their website that Limp Biscuit and Wes Borland have amicably decided to part ways. Both Limp Biscuit and Borland will continue to pursue their respective musical careers and they both wish each other the best in their future endeavors. Now, well, hold on, hold on. Before that, you missed a very important thing. Uh, they were on tour in Australia at the Big Day Out Festival where uh, fans rushed the stage in the mosh pit. Oh, shit. And, yeah, I did. Oh, shit. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and, go ahead. Uh, the, the teenage, that teenage girl, Jessica uh, Michalik, I think that's how you spell her name, and I feel really sorry for not knowing how to, how to say that last name properly. Um, but she died from asphyxiation. And in court, Durst represented or represented by longtime attorney Ed McPherson testified that he had warned the concert's organizers, Aaron Jackson, Will Pierce, and uh, Amar Taylor, and also the promoter Vivian Lees of the potential dangers of such minimal security. And after viewing videotapes and hearing witness testimony, uh, the coroner said it was evident that the density of the crowd was dangerous at the time Limp Biscuit took the stage, stating that Fred Durst should have acted more responsibly when the problem became apparent. Durst later stated that he was emotionally scarred because of the teenager's death. Oh, wow, man. I, uh, I told so this two albums in a row where there have been, they've been on tour at an event and there's, huge huge controversy surrounding their performance right yeah it's it's insane man anytime 
I mean, golly, man. Anytime someone dies for... Golly, man, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, it's so... And, so, I mean, and she has her own, I mean, she has a Wikipedia page that's completely dedicated, completely dedicated to her. Um, it, you know, talk, it, many different bands talk about it. It says that the, it says that the band, uh, Grinspoon, which was her favorite band performed at her funeral and a moment of noise tribute was, was observed, um, sub, at, at a subsequent big day out festival, a Limp Bizkit paid tribute to her at Soundwave 2012, uh, where they performed under a banner with Jessica's name during their uh, show in Brisbane. Man. Man, thoughts and prayers to the family that's still, you know, going through that. I mean, obviously it was, you know, 20 years, 20 ago. years ago, but I'm sure that the effects, you know, still linger to this day with them, you know, so I, I can't imagine. Oh, I'm, I'm really sure. Uh, and then also before uh, Borland left the band, they put out a uh, a remix album called New Old Songs. Yes, yes, yes. That was a uh, oh. that was a uh, that was another great one, which was a lot of good remixes of different songs that they uh, that they did. Uh, they did a re- they did a, a, a remix of uh, In Together Now, um, which was uh, remixed by the Neptune, so Pharrell Williams. Um, and I got to be honest, I didn't care for it. I preferred the uh, the original mix more. Um, and they, I mean, they had a lot of good uh, people on this. They had the Neptunes, Timberland, uh, Diddy was on it, DJ Premier, Dub Pistols, a lot of good ones on here uh, from different ones. Are there, is there any? Are, is there one specifically that you guys remember from this uh, particular album, or did you guys have this album? I, I, I bought I it day one. I did. And did you enjoy the whole album? Um. Yes and no. Um, I I enjoyed it like my first listen through. I was like, oh man, this hits hard. But then like the more I listened to it, the more repetitive it kind of became because you have like five different versions of the song My Way on (laughs) this one album. (laughs) So almost like it became redundant in a sense. Like I don't want to hear a remix of a remix almost. Right. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Roger? I, I never listened to it. Uh, I didn't really know about it. Uh, unfortunately, I, it's just one that never crossed my path, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So from there, from that one, of course, they released that. Then they made the announcement in October of 2001 that Wes Borland has decided to leave the band. Now, how did you guys feel about that when you first heard the news that Wes was leaving the band? What was your initial reaction? I was shocked. Uh, I didn't really expect it. I mean, I was so young, so I didn't know things like this really happened for, like, I thought man stayed together all the time. I was still naive. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was very shocked. And I personally thought that, like, oh, you know, with him leaving, okay, the band's breaking up. We're not never going to get, you know, Lint Biscuit material again. Um, so. Yeah, for me, um, 
I heard it, and it's so strange because, like, anytime it's weird. <clears throat> excuse me. I I don't know how you guys feel about this, but anytime I hear, because certain bands are defined by a certain sound or a certain voice. Like, for example, if I hear a Godsmack song, I know exactly who Sully Erna is, and I know what he sounds like. If I hear Sully Erna on another song, I'm going to assume it's a Godsmack song. The same way if I heard, uh, you know, Jonathan Davis on another song, I'm going to assume it's a Corn song, you know. Um, and I'm not saying that, with, you know, with the whole thing with Limbisky, you know, because guitars can be interchangeable and there are some there are some guitar players where you listen to them and you know oh good that's that's Dimebag or that's marty freeman or that's you know steve ray vaughn or somebody like that like you there there's clearly a a particular sound that they're known for you, you see what i'm saying right um that was like the band okay just quick quick example drowning pool love you if you hear the original album by drowning pool you're like hell yeah this is a great album you know, you hear the second album, it's like, oh, you know, I know it's a new lead singer, you know, and it, it's still, but it's, you still considered it Drowning Pool. Ryan McComb joins the band Drowning Pool, and you don't know that it's Drowning Pool. They don't, if they don't tell you, you're thinking, shit, so- Soil's got a new record. You don't know it's, you know, Ryan McComb playing with Drowning Pool. You're just like, hey, it's the guy from Soil, you know? Right. Um. So to me, that like, that's the, the dichotomy that I had with it. Um. When asked why Borland quit the band, uh, Ross Robbins, who was who was the producer, said that you know he doesn't sell out for money anymore. Sure. So that was his response to that. Um, so I don't I don't know where it came. Maybe there was a disagreement about money, about um, artistic differences, possibly creative differences, if you will. Because uh, Wes was, out of all the band members, you would definitely say that Wes was the more eccentric of the bandmates, if you will. Oh, most definitely. You know. Um, but after that, they held a nationwide audition for a new guitar player entitled Put Your Guitar Where Your Mouth Is. Uh, the band did record f- um, with a former snot guitar player, Mike Smith. And that later scrapped because of different recording sessions. Um, you know, uh, Durst uh told a fan site that he you know felt had a falling out with smith saying that you know we are the type of people that trace you know stay true to our family and our instincts and that any moment will act on intuition as a whole and he said you know mike just wasn't the guy that said that they had fun playing with him and everything but at the end of the day they didn't feel like he was a fit for the band as far as mentally you know Um, right and then in may of 20 uh, in, in, in may of 2002 uh, Durst posted that West Borland's personal email address online and told fans to ask him to rejoin the band. <laughs> In an ironic twist, Wes stated that 50%, I'm sorry, 75% or more of all of the emails pleaded him to not return to the band. <laughs> That's funny. That, 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 it's, it's a cruel twist of irony is what it is. It's so insane. Yeah. Um, to, um, uh, just real quick. Uh, do you, do either of you remember the band that uh, Wes created when he split from Limp Biscuit? Oh, you know? oh, Jesus! I would if you tell me. Probably, I might remember if you tell me. Roger, what about you? Uh, no, not at all. Okay, 
uh, so it was a band called Blacklight Burns. Blacklight Burns, yeah, that's what it was. Um, yes, Blacklight Burns. And so their first album, not anything special about. I mean, I thought it was okay. Uh, but, you know, it was one of those like, oh, okay. Uh, but you you got the chance to hear vocals from West Borland. Right. Uh, which was was different to the in in the aspect that you know you don't really hear his vocals in um Limp Biscuit. Right. Uh but their second album uh the the one interesting thing about out the first album was um that he he did have a song featuring Sam Rivers from Limp Biscuit. So they remained friends during this uh this split right um but their second album was um (laughs) called uh cover your heart and the anvil pants odyssey um just found it a very ironic name for a song uh or for an album uh Again, nothing really. These are all cover songs. Exactly. And it, nothing really stands out about it. Um, other than like it's cover songs, but they're not even cover songs of good songs. So, I mean, the only <laughs> I'm looking at the album now, the only good song that I, I would even consider listening to is Search and Destroy, which was originally by the by Iggy Pop and the Stooges. Like that'd be the only one that I would really want to have a listen to. Yeah. Uh but then you get their their next album which is um called The Moment You Realize You're Going to Fall. Uh and it's just the names of the songs that are amazing to me. Uh the first song is How to Look Naked. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or um, here you go. The seventh song on the album is "Your Head Will Be Riding on a Spike." Mm. The whispers. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so nothing really stands out other than the weird uh, names of these songs. So that's, that's then. Crazy. He decides to rejoin Limp Biscuit, and yeah, that was definitely. But before that whole thing uh, happened, um, they did, of course, uh, in the summer of two thousand and three, Limp Biscuit participated in the Summer Sanitarium tour that was headlined by Metallica, and maybe you know Metallica known specifically for being one of the biggest rock bands in the history of the world and they were on the tour in 2003 it was Limp Biscuit, Linkin Park, Deftones and Mudvayne. That's a pretty interesting lineup um, considering that Metallica being one of the original big four of thrash metal because um, when you think of the big four you think of four bands when it comes to thrash metal you think of Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax and Slayer. Um, you know which you look at these four bands, and especially in the year 2003, Limp Biscuit, Linkin Park, Deftones, and Mudvayne. Those are four new metal bands that are joining up with this, you know, you know, 
full horsemen of the apocalypse in terms of thrash metal so that's a very different dichotomy um for you know a particular but it was also that was also the year that uh mtv i don't know if you guys remember this but do you remember mtv's icon series where they would honor a band or an artist and they would basically basically it's kind of like a like, not, not like a here's your life kind of deal you know with with the artists and things and they had different performers doing uh different things they did one from metallica and it was actually um when uh with Lint Biscuit doing the a cover of the song Sanitarium, which so many people said that it was one of the best versions of that song that they've ever heard. Oh no! Did you guys ever? Do you guys ever remember hearing that uh, version? Uh, I do vaguely, uh, but not off the top of my head. Yeah, I was gonna say I, I vaguely remember hearing about that song. I don't know that I ever actually took the time to listen to that. Um, right. Well, I can do that. I'm not yeah. a fan of Metallica. Right. I, I think, I mean, I think they had one good album in their entire catalog, but that's another discussion for another time. Right. Um, I thought that they had a great out. You see, you hear the original song Sanitarium by Metallica, and then you hear Limp Biscuits version of Sanitarium, and I got to be honest, and I'm, I enjoy Metallica's music, but I thought that Limp Biscuit did a better, better version of Sanitarium than Metallica did. I'm sorry, I thought I think that their version was a little bit more modern. It was a little bit more hard hitting in, in in some cases. Um, you know, I thought that it was just an overall better, um, it was just an overall better uh, delivery of the of the song. Ironically. Because they were brought on in 2003 for the Summer Sanitarium Tour. At the tours, at one of the tour stops in Chicago, attendees at the concert threw items and heckled Fred Durst from the moment he walked on stage. With the crowd chanting, fuck Fred Durst. And during their assault on him, Durst threw the mic down after six songs and walked off stage. But... Not before heckling the crowd back, he repeatedly said, Lint Biscuit are the best band in the world until a roadie took the microphone away from him. <laughs> An article in the, in the Sun-Times stated that the hostility started with radio personality Mancow. Y'all know who Mancow is? Mancow in the morning? I do not. Uh, I don't listen to radio ever. I didn't listen to radio back then. I still don't listen to radio, so I do not. He, he's a he's a shock jock. He he a wannabe Howard Stern kind of deal, you know. Wasn't he on TNA for a minute? No, that was uh, Bubba the Love Sponge. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Same person. Oh, uh, <laughs> both yeah. still equally sleazy. Okay. Um, but that same year, two thousand and three, was the very next album that was released by the band. When they had the album, results may vary. Now, I'm not going to lie. I did not hate this album, but it was very, very different from every other album that they've done. I personally really enjoyed this album. Right. Uh, and I think we've had this conversation before that if from this album forward if they would have stuck with the style of this album uh 
they would probably still be around today or maybe not in maybe not be in obscurity today right exactly um, yeah i really like the sound of this album um it was different but it was in a way better like some things about it made it better uh the lyrics were a lot better in general um i do like a lot of the songs on this album right yeah ironically enough this album didn't really get a whole lot of love i mean Metacritic rated it as a 33 out of 100. Um, they said that the album had general unfavorable reviews. Um, this is the third lowest score that Metacritic ever did. Um, just above the Bloodhound Gang's Hefty Fine album. Which I and, love. And Kevin Federline's Playing With Fire album. Hey, Kevin Federline, fuck Britney Spears. He, your arguments against him are totally invalid. Um, he also beat John Cena in a wrestling ring. You damn right he did. You damn right he did. <laughs> and he was on Celebrity Fit Club. Fuck you haters. Anyway. Um, but according to AllMusic.com reviewer Stephen Thomas Elwine, he, he said, and I quote, The music has no melody, no hooks, no energy. And all attention is focused on a clown jumping up and down screaming on stage. This is Lint Biscuit, not Slipknot. And long before the record is over, you're left wondering the simple question, how the fuck did he ever get put on this mess? Like, really? You had that? <laughs> you know, but the same guy called Behind Blue Eyes the worst in a band's never-ending series of embarrassing covers. I love that song. I liked it. I, love, I liked it, too. Um, it says that... The, the, so... Another album named Stylus, um, or another magazine named Stylus or website or whatever, criticized results me very calling it an album that can only be described as abysmal. Rob O'Connor from Yahoo uh, Launch also criticized the album saying, no, Fred, the results don't vary. The results are constantly throughout the whole album. Constantly shitty. Damn. Uh, and then Kitty Empire of The Guardian uh, wrote Limp Biscuit. Limp Biscuit have decided to expose their tender side. They really should have just bothered. They really shouldn't have bothered having seen Limp Biscuit's other side. I wouldn't mind the old unapologetic, unapologetic metalhead version. And then uh, some people at the Pittsburgh Post Gazelle said that results may vary. Does have some highlights, mostly over uh, with very Everlast. And phenom and phenomenon, which is very primus, but way too few to justify the overall energy of the record. And really, the only good review that it had was when Spin Magazine said the record isn't all that bad. <laughs> That's what they said about. It. I don't know. I enjoyed the record. Like, I mean, the very first song I heard was the song "Eat You Alive." You guys remember that song? Yep, in the forest. Yeah. Say that again. The, the song in the, or the video where they were in the forest. Yeah, uh, the Mortal Kombat video. Those are the trees talking, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I I remember, I mean, I remember the song for sure. Um, this was his ode to Britney Spears. Yes. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Which is ironic because he he claimed a... Uh, 
a relationship with Britney Spears that she vehemently refuses ever happened. Um, now, whether it's true or not, I don't know. Maybe she was, you know, embarrassed by it or that wouldn't make sense to her. I don't think it ever happened because why would she claim Kevin Federline but not Fred Durst? Well, I think at the time Fred Durst or Kevin Federline has a little less dirt on him than Fred Durst did. I mean, but Fred Durst was definitely more of a likable person. Oh yeah. Well, at the time, we didn't know that. We didn't know how much of a douchebag Kevin Federline was until much, much later after Fred uh, Durst and Limp Biscuit kind of were out of sight, out of mind. Uh, yeah, we did. When did he did when did when did Kevin Fairline do the bullshit with uh, the album? Was it around that time? Because wait a minute, this yes. was yes, two thousand and two thousand three. But I don't remember him doing the deal with Cena until much much later. No, throughout that time because it was to promote his album. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Two thousand three. Cena wasn't. Cena was doing that whole deal. I don't know. Cena wasn't. Uh, Cena didn't become world champion until 2004, and that was way before he did the thing with K-Fed. 2003, sure? Cena was... Cena was do, In 2003, Cena was doing the, uh, the fucking um, pre-show for WrestleMania 19. Let me see here. Yeah, the whole thing with K-Fed didn't happen until like 2007, 2008. Let's see here. 2006. 2006. Yeah. Because that's when the song Playing With Fire came out. That's when the album Playing With Fire came out. He had that song America's Most Hated or some bullshit. I don't give a fuck. That song was hard. Wow. Really? How dare you support this man? That song. I said that song. He said how dare you support this man? Oh shit! I don't care. <laughs> okay. So anyway, my dude can be a one-hit wonder. I don't give a damn. Hey, you Did go. he have a hit though? To be honest, America's Most Hated. It was a fucking hit. Uh, and Mars, baby. All right, let's continue. All right. So when you look at this album, is there any albums? Of, okay. We all know about the song "Eat You Alive." And we all know about the song "Behind Blue Eyes," which is a great cover that they did uh, by the Who. Um, were there any other songs on this album that you got that particularly stood out to you guys? Um, well, I, I completely forgot what I was going to say. Um, I think "Let Me Down" was a good one. Uh, yeah, "Phenomenon" was a good one. Yep, Those are the ones I really remember. Besides the other ones, obviously, uh, off the top of my head. But I mean, if I listen to the album, I'll probably remember them more. Um, uh, those are the ones off the top of my head that I remember. Like I can actually remember playing and everything in my head. Right, Chip. What yeah. about you? Um, definitely the ones that Roger said, but also, um, build a bridge with Brian Welsh from Corn. Absolutely. And, um, like, like really, the first eight or nine songs are great, and then. You have a couple of ones that are okay. Uh, and then you pick up, you know, back uh, again uh, with a few songs 
um but my personal favorite song on this whole album is a song called almost over right um and it's uh there's a story to the song where he basically talks about um how it was growing up versus how it is now right um, as an adult uh and i recommend anybody who hasn't listened to that song like go listen to it uh shoot me a message shoot us a message over here at movement radio let me know what you think about the song i like i said i personally think it's the best song on this album that probably people haven't heard right my personal favorite and i got two of them um i i really do enjoy the song uh red light green light by snoop dogg uh featuring snoop dogg it was just a, it was just a fun uh song you know that that you know was really really good my personal another one my personal favorite one is a song uh creamer radio is dead that's one that you know i just really i mean the chorus goes you know take me back to yesterday rolling dice and getting laid everything was a-okay but now and then a cloud rolls in rains on my parade and then taking this and then taking that again um almost like you're reminiscing about like the days where you didn't have to worry about shit. You didn't have to worry about, you know, having to, you know, deal with issues or responsibilities or problems or anything like that. You could just be a kid all over again, you know? Um, Yeah. But didn't the song have the lyrics of, uh, why are you standing in my face like that? You never seen a maniac with a baseball bat. Yep. Yep. Never seen. Go ahead. Yeah. A maniac knocking on your baseball cap. You better step about 10 paces back. Or you'll be laying where your shoelaces at. Yep, yep. Kind of remind you a little bit of like some old school kind of, kind of, kind of, a, kind of a naughty by nature kind of vibe to it. You know, like like I can clearly hear like Tretz singing, rapping this particular way, the way that he was rapping. You know, um, you know, and even bringing up some shit from the past. You know, um, yeah. I mean, for me personally, like this was one of my favorites on the whole entire record. Um, you know, it's where, it's where he was like, you know, thinking that you're all that and then some, I got news for you. And it's like all radio is dead. You're you're thinking that you're all that and then some, but man, I got some news for you. And he it constantly says all the time, radio is dead, radio is dead. You know, almost as if a reminder saying, you know, like no one, again, like what Roger's talking about, like really no one listens to the fucking radio anymore. You know, it's all streaming services and, you know, if you do listen to radio, it's like satellite radio, you know, it's like Sirius XM, you know, and even then, you know, I was offered, you know, I was just offered in the mail, like, hey, five bucks a month for 12 months, you get a free Echo Dot, like, motherfucker, if I, if I could afford five dollars a month, I'd already be signed up, like, <laughs> you know what I mean, it's just 2020, it's 2021 now, man, we, we still kind of struggling, let, let us get out of this uh, pit for a minute, then we'll discuss, but anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, I thought the whole album, you know, Overall, I thought the whole album was good. I didn't, I didn't like it as much as Chocolate Starfish, which then again, Chocolate Starfish is kind of an album that's kind of hard to like top. Um, uh, but then you go from that, we transition back to when I got to scroll back up. Please forgive me. Um, you know, Results May Vary was you know considered you know a, a good album you know when it returned, but then. Uh, in August of 2004, Wes actually rejoined Slint Biscuit, which began recording an EP called the, Qu- the Unquestionable Truth 
part one. Do you guys remember this album? I remember hearing about it, but I can't say that I ever listened to it uh, when I, it came out. I know I didn't listen to it at all. I only heard one song, which was which is a song called "The Truth," and it's only a seven-song EP. Uh, it's the propaganda, the truth, the priest, the key, the channel, the story, the surrender. That's basically that's basically the whole entire album, and the lyrical content and the background of it. Basically, um, the unquestionable truth focuses on more serious subjects and more ominous lyrical subject matter than the band has previously have been known for so you hear shit about propaganda uh the catholic uh sex abuse cases uh so sex abuse in the catholic church terrorism and the the horrors of fame uh ign reviewer uh spencer d uh described the album's sound as being very very sinister calling west borland's guitar playing on propaganda a skirt a a skirling swirl into darkness with all music reviewer uh steven thomas ellswine the guy who basically basically butchered the fuck out of him uh ripped him a new asshole basically on yelp i'm sorry his magazine um basically saying that he described the album as neo prog alt rock so that's the way it's described and then the song the truth was strongly influenced by industrial music um so kind of something similar to like a tool or a dream theater kind of like um and where the song the key features more of a funk based style something you hear from like you know like george clinton and the p-funk all-stars or something and then the surrender features fred durst singing against sam rivers minimalist guitar (laughs) bass line bless you and a very sorry, bless you. No, it's all good. It was very in an ambient kind of like, you know, ambient you know sound provided by DJ Lethal. Um, so I've heard only one song on the album. I haven't got, gone back and listened to it. Um, but I'm intrigued. I kind of want to know what it sounds like now. You know, um, I wish I could you know talk more about it, but there's really nothing to talk about about it. You know, I mean, this song. This album was, excuse me, released back in 2004. So could we hear something that they talked about in 2004? And could we, could we take it for what it is and apply it to today's music and today's atmosphere of the world? And would it fit in today's world today? What do you guys think? Um, I don't know. I'd, I'd actually probably have to go and actively seek this album and listen to it uh to think or to to see that if it would even um resonate well uh today right roger yeah i haven't heard it so i really can't say uh unfortunately so i have no idea exactly like how well it would do or anything like that at all uh i'd have to listen to it yeah yeah definitely i'd have to listen to it as well um the same guy from uh the same guy uh Elswine, did say that this album was a quote-unquote step in the right di- direction it's more um 
ambiguous, it's more dramatic, it's more aggressive, and it's built for from not it's built off of its nonstop courses. Um, but a lot of people do believe that the album, even though it was different, it shows band growth, but it was still somewhat lacking something. And it says that the album, whew, get this, the album only sold 37,000 copies worldwide. Not in the States, worldwide. Because you, so, so you go from, you know, having sold, you know, 400,000 copies in a day to selling 37,000 copies worldwide, you know. Only P can get 24 on the Billboard 200. And this is all following the band's greatest hits record, which, and then after that, the band went on hiatus. Orland stated that. Um, Go ahead. I was going to say, they, after this album, they uh, put out three different greatest hits albums. (laughs) Right. Um, You had Greatest Hits, which came out in 2005. Then you had um, their second greatest hits album, um, called Collected. Uh, right. And then in 2011, you had um, the album Icon, which, so three in a row of quote-unquote greatest hits albums uh, before they put out any new music. Right. And it's, uh, it, it's crazy how it's crazy how that whole thing came about because when then you go into 2000 the year 2009 and Lint Biscuit reunites with Wes playing guitar full time launching you know the Unicorn and Rainbows tour which didn't really pan out um they didn't really I mean they had like an Asian tour and a European tour I think after that but then Durst announced that they had begun recording their brand new album which Wes Borland had entitled Gold Cobra and they said that it was going to be basically similar to $3 Bill Y'all it's almost like $3 Bill Y'all and Significant Other had a bastard child together that's basically what the album was going to be Uh, so I ask you gentlemen have you heard Golden Cobra and what were your actual opinion about it Um, I bought the album day one uh as i had so many limp biscuit albums previously but um it was very forgettable um very much like their first album um it had you know a couple of good songs you had shotgun you had gold cobra um and I mean, they did a song called 90210 um, that was that was OK. But other than that, you, you have to look to their um, deluxe version where you got a song featuring Paul Wall called Middle Finger and a song called uh, Combat Jazz featuring Raekwon. Right. So, yeah, that for me, I I heard this album you it's a situation where you're you, you they're trying to live up to what made them 
you know, Limp Biscuit in the first place. But you also have to remember that this is the year 19, I'm sorry, this is the year 2009, okay? So, oh no, I'm sorry, 2011, I apologize. The year 2011. Think of all the acts, think of all the rock acts that had came out in the year 2011. All the artists who have made records since then, even when, you know, because Limp Biscuit was going back and forth and they had their hiatuses and band members have switched up and things like things of that nature. But then you think about the actual way that the industry was at that time, because if we can all be honest with ourselves, 2001 met new metal at its very core was pretty much non-existent anymore in the rock scene, you know? Uh, I mean, in 2001, uh, that was a huge year for uh, new metal, but 2011, right. it was not. Right. Um, and, and think about this, and this is, and I'm just going by 2011 when this album came out. The albums, the the hard rock albums and metal albums that came out around this time. Mastodon came out with The Hunter. Uh, Foo Fighters came out with Wasting Lights. American Capitalist by Five Finger Death Punch. Evanescent self-titled record. Black Veil Bride. Seether. Dream Theater. Oh, time out. Time out. Time out. You cannot say Evanescence is hard rock. You wouldn't. I wouldn't. But that's what they classify it as. So I, I don't I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm just reading the list. Be upset with Google. Uh, but <laughs> I don't think anybody would. But. <laughs> is hard rock roger what do you think like i said like i said be upset with google uh but yeah red theory of a dead man 6 a.m within temptation trivium devil wears prada disturbed came out with the lost children ep three doors down which most people don't consider them hard rock but i mean they're kind of pop rock but they're at least rock so that they're in this category machine head fucking children of bodom in flames uh pop evil steel panther uh, Rise Against, Stain had an album, Cold had an album, Corn had an album, The Devin Townsend Project had an album, Reb Theory had an album, you know, like, there was so many albums that came out around, Adelita's Way had an album, you know, around this time that were so many, and then, and this isn't even accounting other bands who had gotten successful during this whole thing between Limp Biscuit when bands like Three Days Grace and Trapped and Seether and fucking, you know, Shine down and all and Godsmack and all these other bands that continuously Slipknot that continuously progressed and continuously got better because they were able to change their style. They were able to change with the with the with you know with what was going on in culture and what was going on in society. And Limp Biscuit was still in 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 a in a sense stuck in their ways. Would you say? Um. <laughs> yes and no. I, I I distinctly remember Gold Cobra being um quite heavier than um significant other uh chocolate starfish uh and results may vary. Uh, I distinctly remember it being heavier. So I don't think it was them being stuck in their way. I think they went in a direction. Like they they 
weaved left and should have bobbed right. Right. If you know what I mean. I see what you're saying. Almost as if like they they tried something, but because they were known for something for so long, they didn't really were accepting of the new thing that they were doing. Right. What What do you think, Roger? Uh, I do, I do remember Gold Cobra being a little bit sort of different. Uh, the song at the album, I didn't really listen to the album. I remember the videos coming out and everything on YouTube when he was getting big and stuff, but uh, that song was a little bit different, so I don't think they were stuck in their ways. Uh, they tried something different, but like we said, if they would have done what they did and results may vary, it'd be a different story. Right. I don't know. I think results may vary. You know, again, I think I don't think it was a shit record. I thought it was very good. I felt like everything after that was almost kind of downhill. Like I, to me, like Gold Cobra. I don't know. Maybe I maybe I need to be the one to go back and li- listen to it again and give it a second chance. Maybe. Maybe it's one of those situations, but you know, people really. You know, maybe it was a situ- maybe it was a situation of them being in. But Gold Cobra did sell eighty thousand copies in the United States alone, and it did peak at number sixteen on the Billboard two hundred. But this was also at a time. When the band left Interscope following this album's release. Which then led to the uh, <laughs> led to the uh, the relationship between uh, Limp Biscuit and, if I'm not mistaken, Cash Money Records when they signed with them. Yeah. Uh, now, I th- this is February of 2012. The band returned to Australia for the first time in 11 years. They performed at Sound- the Soundway Festival. Um, you know, this was after you know, 10 years after the death of the Jessica, um, Michalak, uh, uh, death. Um, and then Limp Bizkit did, of course, sign with Cash Money Records and then following a dispute between, uh, Fred Lethal and John Otto about two, uh, about basically drug, uh, basically chronic drug and alcohol use. This is when DJ Lethal angrily left the band. Uh, DJ Lethal later posted a, an apology to the band on Twitter, but was ultimately not allowed to come back to the band. Do you guys remember this incident at all? No. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do. I do remember hearing about this because um, this was also right around the time that um, they were doing album, they, they, not albums, they did a song with Lil Wayne and everything, so it was very mainstream. Right. Uh so I do remember hearing about this, but I also didn't really care. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I mean, really, I mean, I mean, this is what Wes said. Wes on uh, the band's relationship with DJ Lethal, he says, and I quote, "He's been in and out and in and out. I know what he wants to do, but don't know what he wants to do. If that makes any sense." If he came back into the band or if he didn't come back to the band, he's kind of all over the place. I don't know if he wants to be in this band, truly. When we had him back, nothing materialized as far as material coming out of him, <clears throat> excuse me, to add to the records. We we are currently still talking to him. We've opened up dialogue back as recently as a few months ago, and we'll see what happens. And that, so that was basically after the whole aftermath of all that happened. Um, Fred Durst was featured in a song called Champions, which is a Kevin Rudolph song that WWE used for the uh, the Night of Champions uh, event. Um, 
I think this was also at the time that Fred Durst was at SummerSlam and uh, he flipped the camera off, I believe, at one point. Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. and it was like, hey, hold on, Fred. That's not. P- that's not. We're not. They're not. A, they're. Not, they're a PG product now. Hold on, Fred. And of course, Fred's somewhere not giving a fuck, but you know that it is what it is. Um, right. But then that's when the band recorded their seventh album, Stampede of the Disco Elephants, that was produced by Ross Robbins. And it is still the year 2020. And where is it? Where the fuck is this record? I mean, you had a couple of songs released. You had the song Ready to Go with Lil Wayne. Uh, you had the uh, the cover of the Ministry song Thieves. Uh, you did another song called Endless Slaughter. So, yeah, there is a plethora of time that that has happened i mean <laughs> uh, you also had the song light city of angels and that was released back in 2012 um just basically as of 2020 so as of uh, last year it's weird saying as of last year um the album remains in quote unquote development hell with no release date set in july of 2017 band leader uh, fred durst claimed on Instagram that the album had already been available online for almost a year and you can find it on a on a website called soulseek.com. Taurus West Borland, however, said three months later that Durst was still working alone on the album. He again reiterated the band's progress, saying the exact same thing that Fred was working alone on the album in November of two of, of uh, 2018 so right my question right. to you guys then becomes are we really going to get the stampede of the disco elephants album probably not um so in 2018 dj lethal actually um rejoined the band um so it's it's all the original lineup yet again uh i think they've probably if they're gonna release any uh music they're they probably went back to the drawing board and they're gonna restart with the album i mean if you think about it now if they try to put out this album it uh i mean it's it's almost 10 years the material's almost 10 years old at this point uh so they probably should go back to the drawing board and just start over. Well, well, let me say this, and Roger, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm gonna let you speak in a second. I didn't mean to cut you off if I did, <laughs> and I apologize. But and he cut you off like Kanye West cut off Chase uh, Swift. Yeah. Hey, I'm gonna let you finish. <laughs> no, no, but, but no. I, I, oh, go, go ahead. I don't, I don't want to piss you off. Go ahead. Oh, you're good. You're good. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm trying. I'm, hey, look, man. I don't want you to feel like I'm, I'm stepping on your toes or nothing, man. Now, if you got something to say. Go, you're good. You're okay, good. <laughs> okay, all right, making sure. Um, no, I was gonna say that um, there was a, there was an article that came out in the New Zealand Herald, and they basically dubbed the disco, the uh, stampede of the disco elephants, as the Chinese democracy of new metal. Because remember when so many years ago, fucking um, Axl Rose said that oh Chinese democracy is coming, um, you know because fucking Guns N' Roses had the album, uh, Jesus, when, when was their last album before? Use Your Illusion. 
Uh, they did that back in 19... What was it 1999, 1998, something like that? And then we didn't get this, uh, the album Chinese Democracy until 2008. So exactly how long are we going to actually wait until this album does officially happen? If it officially happens. Um, because if you think about it, I don't know if you guys actually listened to the album Chinese Democracy it sounded like material that was released back in the 90s today. That's what it sounded like. So, if Stan... Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard that album. Say what now? I don't think I've ever heard that album. Yeah. I haven't either. I've I, I've heard bits of it, like, here and there, like, when I, when you like you can, like, look it up on YouTube or whatever. Um, I mean, if you're looking for Guns N' Roses from, like, the 80s or something, like, if you're looking for Welcome to the Jungle Guns N' Roses, you ain't gonna find it. Um, like Sweet Child of Mine, Guns N' Roses, you ain't gonna find it. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's there could be some songs on there that you might consider good, but I mean, it's it is what it is. Um, <clears throat> that's only that's the only good thing I'm gonna say about it, it is what it is. Okay. But with the Stampede of El- Disco Elephants album, they're basically equating it to that because it's been so long since Limp Bizkit put out anything significant. If they did put this album out. Would it be almost like you're traveling back in a time where you reminisce, or would you listen to it and be like, "Man, this shit sounds old as fuck," you know? How, how would you, how would you guys feel? I don't know. It depends. Are we? Uh... <laughs> so, it's Stampede to the Disco Elephants. Um, significant other through results may vary. Limp Biscuit, or is this Gold Cobra Limp Biscuit? I mean, right. It, it, for me, it would just depend on what style. I would probably buy it, or, or let me rephrase that. I don't buy music anymore. I have Amazon Music that I pay for, and that's how I listen to my music now. Right. Uh, you know, most people have Spotify, Amazon Music, stuff like that. Right. Uh, but, I mean, I would definitely, you know, if they put out an album, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to listen to it. Right. Um. Right. But I don't know if I mean I don't it it's got to be pretty spectacular, I think. Right. Roger. Um yeah, same as Chip. I mean it depends on if they're doing new stuff or are they doing Gold Cobra? Like is the new stuff gonna be good or do they go back to results may vary and actually get like deep with it? Like it really depends. Uh I really don't. I wouldn't buy it anyways. I'd stream it. Uh, Spotify, of course. But, I mean, if it's good, I'm, I'm always going to be like, hey, this album's really good. But, who knows? Yeah, it, it's insane. Um, From everything, I mean, and this, I mean, just the awards that they won and everything. They won Billboard Music back in 2000. They won the Top Modern Rock Artist of the Year Award. Um, You know, they won... Uh, Blockbuster Entertainment. Oh my God, the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards. You remember that? <laughs> no, crazy. Yeah, it was it was it was Blockbuster I, Studios uh, award show that they did right before they you know that were right before uh, Netflix took over. <laughs> yeah, I actually do remember that, and I only remember that because I used to work at Blockbuster. Right. <laughs> shout out to all the shout out to the only Blockbuster that's still remaining in the world today. 
think it's like somewhere up in Oregon or some shit. I don't know. Um, I thought there was one in Mexico. No, nah, no. Nah, there's. I think there's one. I think there's one still here in the states because just because I think they don't get inter, they don't get good internet there in that area, so they just rent all their videos from this blockbuster. It's just some guy named Dave just buying and making bootleg copies of everything, <laughs> hanging them up, selling them. I guess I don't know. Um, but yeah. Uh, so with that being said, out of all the albums and of all the songs that we let's do, okay, let, let's kick it off with just albums what do you guys think is the best album that they produced uh chocolate starfish yeah it would have to be chocolate starfish yeah in between chocolate starfish and significant other i think significant other kind of established them and then chocolate starfish kind of made like just show people yo this is who the fuck we are kind of you know thing you know um it definitely was a little bit more raw what album would you say is you know, and I don't count Stampede of the Disco Elephants because it hasn't been released. But what album was their worst album, you think? Uh, uh, a toss up between Three Dollar Bill, y'all, and Gold Cobra? Yeah. I, I can't pick. I mean, I think they, without going back right now and listening to both of them there in their entirety, I think they're both equally bad. Yeah, I would have to say probably. I would, I mean, honestly, I think Gold Cobra because I mean, I. $3 bill, y'all, has a soft spark in my heart. So I'm going to go ahead and deal with that one. Uh, but Go Cobra, because I didn't really vibe with it as much as I vibe with the other ones, I'll have to go with that one, I think. As far as songs go, and you don't have to go just top three favorite songs. You don't, they don't have to be in any particular order, but top three favorite songs all time by Limp Bizkit. Uh, Rearrange, uh, My Way, um, uh, that third one. Uh, uh, I can't pick a third one. Uh, maybe Behind Blue Eyes. I like that cover a lot. Okay, Chip. What about you? Uh, I'll I'll do as Roger and give you one from each album. Um, uh, rearranged from Significant Other. Or each of their good albums, I'll say. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, rearranged from Significant Other. Um, almost Over from Results May Vary. And then uh, from Chocolate Starfish, it would... Uh, I'm going to have to go with Get Your Groove On featuring Exhibit. Right. Uh, for me, from the significant other record, um, break stuff for me, just because I I know that a lot of people like say it's overplayed and shit. Like, what I yeah, I don't give a fuck. I, <laughs> I enjoyed. It. I thought the song was great. Um, you know, Nookie had a strong number two, and then uh, rearranged at three. Um, but Chocolate Starfish, um, golly, I mean, it's hard to go against Roland. It's hard to go against my generation. Uh, I pro I'd probably say my generation just because I mean it was more of an anthem than anything, uh, and then for results may vary. Uh, radio is dead. That is my the cream of radio is dead is my favorite one from there. Um, it it's definitely interesting going back and looking at you know and 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 his and another song that we never talked about uh, that we never got a chance to talk about it was a non album single. It was called Crack Attic. And it was used for the, because I think we kind of glossed over it a little bit that 
uh, Limp Biscuit did actually perform Roland live at WrestleMania 19 when The Undertaker made his entrance, but they also had the theme song for that year's WrestleMania with the song Crack Attic. Um, if you go back, because after you know, normally after WrestleManias, they usually have like a wrap up video package that they play at the very end, kind of like highlighting the evening. And then that WrestleMania highlight package with the song Crack Attic in the background. Dude, I was like, man, kind of like Roger, how you are when you hear my way for the WrestleMania 17. Um, uh, which, I mean, they took the top, in my opinion, the top two. I mean, the, the, the coolest videos that you, you'd see in terms of wrestling both include Limp Biscuit songs, and they both happen at the two best WrestleManias that ever happened. Um, so, my opinion, I, I, I mean, if you're going to, you know, which we'll, we'll discuss best WrestleManias later on down the line in a different video. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, that that would be another song that I that I thoroughly enjoy, and it's not part of the actual albums, but that's one album that I that I do enjoy. Um, so that being said, <laughs> um, I thought this was a great episode of a of a rock retrospective. Um, definitely think this is one that people are going to enjoy if they are fans of uh, old school new metal type music. And speaking of old school new metal type music. If you guys, uh, if you want to, if we want to talk about a band that has been ever changing, ever evolving, ever keeping up with the times, that basically they were pioneers of this genre of new metal. And I'm not talking about Limp Biscuit. I'm actually talking about another band. Um, but I want to ask you guys this question before I actually make this statement. Are we going to do the poll, or are we going to do what we, what, what we originally thought we were going to do for the very next episode of Rock Retrospectives? What do you guys want to do? Uh, I'm definitely down to do what we uh, had discussed previously. All right, Roger? Yeah, same. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and say it right here. Ladies and gentlemen, on the very next episode of Rock Retrospective, we are going to be discussing the entire album collection, the ups and downs, the departures and returns, of the band corn so that's going to be a very cool episode they only have like 15 albums that we need to go over so we need to start this podcast at like one o'clock in the afternoon and we'll be done by midnight uh <laughs> but yeah thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode of movement radio and this episode of a rock retrospectives um you guys want to talk about anything before we get out of here today uh particularly <laughs> okay moving on so <laughs> i was trying to think but no i can't really think of anything yeah i don't, yeah, I, I don't know why i don't i don't know why it catches you guys off guard all the time you know i'm gonna ask you every single time uh you know anything anything else you want to you know discuss you know yeah no i i just just my normal thank you for listening to us thank you for going on this journey with us uh you know keep on keeping on uh it's 2021 and uh keep on keeping on keep on keeping on <laughs> yeah god's plan right that's right all right well with that being said yep please do not leave without leaving a like comment share and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform make sure you follow us on all of our social medias facebook twitter and instagram go to our youtube channel subscribe click that bell to get notified of our latest videos podpage.com slash move it radio to check out the archive and leave a review and storefrontier.com to cop some merch i am chip hazard i am talon williams 
I'm Roger Sierra. And this is Movement Radio. We out. This is Movement Radio.